The One Hot Minute podcast is brought to you by The Warehouse, who believe that saving the planet shouldn't cost the earth. Join them on their journey in making the sustainable affordable. Activities are changing the atmosphere. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. The One Hot Minute Podcast from Stuff's Forever Project. Sean Hendy is a professor at Auckland University where he studies and teaches physics. But when COVID-19 struck, journalists started calling him to ask about something completely different, the spread of coronavirus. That's because Sean and his colleagues at Tapunaha Matatini Research Centre developed the mathematical models showing what could happen if New Zealand didn't go into lockdown, and they got the government's attention. In other words, if you didn't like Level 4 lockdown, blame Hendy. And if you loved Level 4 lockdown, you can thank him. But before coronavirus, Hendy was better known for something he wasn't doing. In 2018, he took a year off flying. Since then, he's been trying to encourage other scientists to fly less, and he's written a book about his experiences. And now we've got him on the One Hot Minute podcast. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's climate change editor, and here's how it all works. Stuff has launched an online video series called One Hot Minute, where we give each guest just 60 seconds to tell their climate change story. Sean Handy's One Hot Minute was a demand for Kiwi Rail to reinstate a decent daily passenger rail service between Auckland and Wellington. Now, 60 seconds isn't long to make your case, so in this podcast series, we take each guest aside for a full interview, where we can dig a bit deeper into what they said in their video. I started by asking Sean Handy what life is like for someone who'd rather take the train between New Zealand's two biggest cities. In your One Hot Minute, you talked about the demise of the daily train service between Auckland and Wellington. As someone who's taken a lot of trains, as you have, tell me, what's it like out there for train commuters? Uh, it's not It's not good. <laughs> you know, if you want to get to Wellington, you can't take a train at the moment. You know, we've had the every second day service for the last couple of decades, and that's now been suspended post-COVID. You know, it's really because that's been viewed as a tourist jaunt, um, and it's not something that the average New Zealander is, is really taking advantage of. But I think there's a growing concern that people have about their carbon footprint, about the emissions that come from the travel that they do. And certainly that was a motivating feature for me. You know, taking the train is one of the lowest carbon ways you can get across the country. And now we just haven't got that option. I want to talk about the the carbon footprint aspect in a second. But before we leave trains, describe for me your single worst moment as a train passenger. Was there a moment when you were like, what am I doing? (laughs) I had this, it was actually, I was finishing off my book. So this was the book that came out in in 2018, uh, No Fly. And I had the proofs and I had to get them back. So so just just for listeners, you wrote a book in 2018 called Hashtag No Fly, Walking the Talk on Climate Change, about a year you spent not flying. Yeah, yeah. So, so it came out in 2019. It was about my 2018 right. not being in planes. And I had the proofs. This would have been sort of August 2019, something like this. I had a deadline. I had to try and get these proofs back to Bridget Williams, the, the publisher. And I s- sat next to this guy in his 70s from Yorkshire. 
he was a tourist, you know, he sort of travels the world taking famous train journeys and he just talked. <laughs> he talked. It's an eleven hour trip and he, he was not quiet the entire time. And it was it was actually it, it was not boring. You know, you'd think that that sounds like your worst nightmare, but he was actually really engaging. You know, kind of had a, a Yorkshire perspective on the world, a lot of fun, but I really had to do these proofs. <laughs> so I actually had to duck out, pretend I was um, heading to the loose, but grab my laptop and disappeared. <laughs> and so I was, I was down in the dining car for about an hour as I worked through the proofs, and then I went back and was able to listen. So it was kind of a, it's just one of those great experiences that happened to you when you travel, and, and it can be slightly inconvenient at times, but it's always fascinating. Had you, of course, been on the plane to Wellington, this all would have been over in an hour. And uh, Well, yeah, and these days on the plane, everybody puts their earphones in. You know, actually, I can't think of the last time I had a, a really interesting uh, conversation on a plane, but it happens all the time on the train. It's a different world. So in your book, No Fly, you argue that academics and other people like you who get invited to conferences all around the world and meetings should be saying, no, thank you. Why did you argue that? There's kind of two things. One aspect of it is just sort of personal accountability, right, for the impact that you're making as an individual. And that's extreme. If you're one of these people that clocks up the air miles, if you've got a choro club, if you've made gold elite or gold, then you've racked up a lot of time on planes. You're probably three to four times the the emissions rate of, of the average New Zealander. So you're living this really privileged life. If you're a scientist, then you're also living this privileged life at the same time as telling other people to cut back, right? We're really concerned about climate change in the science community. We're really concerned that governments haven't acted. And then we're not acting ourselves. And so there's this element of personal responsibility that comes into it. But then there was a second piece, which is around trying to find new ways to talk about climate change. One of the challenges is, you know, this is an issue, it's a slow-burning issue that's sort of unfolding over decades. What about it is news? <laughs> you know, I mean, what's the breaking news on climate change today? We're getting these incremental changes. Occasionally we'll have a big disaster. But how do you keep it in the public's attention when it's such a slow-moving issue? And so one way is to try and find new ways of talking about it. And so that was partly my motivation around taking that year off. You know, I thought it would give me an opportunity to talk about my experience of not being on planes and to bring climate into that discussion. You certainly got a, a ton of media attention for doing it, but I, I wanted to come Back to what you said about personal responsibility and scientists talking about this thing all the time but not walking the talk. Do you think that it matters to be seen to be doing the right thing here? Yeah, I think it does, right? When people, are, you know, you're trying to judge up well, who's the most credible person. It's very hard for someone who's not an expert in climate to sort of pick apart the evidence, understand who's credible, who's really telling the truth. And when scientists are talking about the impact of carbon emissions and then emitting as they do it, you know, almost at the same time, how does that look from an outside perspective? And so, so yeah, I think it does matter. You know, your actions do count um, for whether people regard you as credible or not. The, the criticism against that is, oh, well, this is virtue signalling. You know, this is just you showing what it an amazing guy you are, but it's not actually having a measurable impact on the planet. How do you respond to that? I mean, it's, it's kind of true. <laughs> you know, that was one of the things I had to grapple with early on, is the plane still flew, right? <laughs> that was something I had to think about and factor into my year. 
knowing that the world was still going on as normal around it. So did I actually make a measurable difference? Actually, I'm not sure. Certainly New Zealand's carbon emissions didn't drop that year. Um, on I've the other hand, stats, they did not. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you know, on the other hand, it, it did start a conversation, right? And I did feel like I was reaching audiences that I wouldn't ordinarily have connected with. And then I think the big thing that happened was, and I can't take any credit for this whatsoever, was Greta Thunberg coming along and really changing that conversation. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. So I, I became part of a broader conversation and I was able to give a bit of a New Zealand perspective on that, which I think was, you know, it's always helpful for these global issues to have people locally who can talk to them. You explained your decision to stop flying by saying, I have lived most of my life as if I didn't believe in climate change. What did you mean by that? So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I first learned about climate change when I was 12 years old. My dad subscribed to Scientific American and days in Palmerston North where it was rainy and Saturday sport was cancelled, <laughs> um, which was quite often. I'd sneak into dad's study and read these magazines. And so I, I came across this article on climate change, this 1982. And yeah, it, it actually had quite an effect on me as a 12-year-old. And I actually did my science fair project that year on climate change. And so it's, that's always kind of stuck with me. But Hang I on, never... tell us about the Science Fair project. Yeah, so well, we, we, um, we did a couple of things. We melted some ice and we looked at the fact, you know, the fact that actually if you melt an ice cube and some water, the volume doesn't change, right? The height of the water doesn't change. So um, this is the, the sea ice equivalent the, now. The, that's right. So sea ice melting doesn't actually change the sea level, but ice coming off land, such as we have happening in the Antarctica, uh, with ice shelves sliding off, does actually raise sea levels. So that was one thing we looked at. And then we looked at, um, I remember ordering these maps from the council, these great large, I don't know where they've gone now, topographic maps of Palmerston North, and I just mapped out who was going to be underwater. So my house was going to be underwater, and disappointingly, my school was not. Um, so that was a that was a great um, first example I had of finding things out in science I didn't want Did <laughs> to know. I know, very inconvenient, isn't it? Did yeah. Palmerston North City Council not commission you on the spot as a 12-year-old to, to do these flood maps? They did not. <laughs> we might all be better off if they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, of course, that, you know, that's kind of a contentious issue these days, doing those kind of maps. You know, so that was early on. But I, I, it didn't inspire me to become a climate scientist. And that's partly because I felt it would be a solved problem. You know, it, it felt like, okay, well, we, we understand the science. I've done my science fair project now. Surely the world is actually going to now open their eyes to the problem that's going on. So I really did assume that we would be solving the problem by the time I would, I'd grown up. And of course, it hasn't happened. I've stayed engaged with the issue, but I haven't made it central to my career. And then that, you know, I think with um, Trump's election, in 2016, and the you know the paralysis that sort of followed that internationally around dealing with climate change, I realised at that point that it was really something that I had to take some personal responsibility for now, because I you know I'd spent those decades just kind of leaving the problem to other people. You ultimately became a physicist, so you've done everything from you know nanoparticles to modelling whole populations. You're not a climate scientist. Why stick your oar in? Why get involved outside your lane, some people might say? It comes back to a little bit to, to your responsibility as a scientist. And um, 
I've been an advocate for scientists asking themselves, if not me, then who? That's a message I've tried to get out to my colleagues. In New Zealand, that can be particularly acute because sometimes there might be one or two experts in the country, and if you're not prepared to take action or to speak to the public or to step up in an emergency, then actually there might be no one in the country. You know, it's not such a as big a deal in bigger countries with larger scientific communities where there's broader coverage in, in science, but in New Zealand that's really acute. And so that was kind of one of those moments. It seemed to be something that I could do and bring my own personal experience to. And as a science communicator, I thought, well, if I don't do this, <laughs> you know, then, then actually it, it might go undone. Before we leave flying, you wrote that your carbon footprint fell by 95% that year. That is a heck of a lot. How many trips did you used to make? Yeah, so in a bad year, in like a year where I was doing a lot of travelling, I might have gone to Europe twice, the US twice, something like that, and maybe three or four trips to Australia. Um, that would probably be my worst year. And that was uh, that was crazy. <laughs> it's not good personally. It actually puts a lot of strain on you. And uh, of course, you're leaving your family behind for quite long periods of time. You know, and I know a lot of scientists that that's not atypical. You build up these networks of people that you work with around the world, and it, you know, it can be really important to go spend time with the people that you're collaborating with. I wanted to ask you about those networks, because some of your other research has focused on the power of physical proximity in getting patents out, getting innovation, getting the kind of productivity that you've argued New Zealand needs. What are the downsides of not being able to fly around the world at the drop of a hat? There are some considerable downsides, and I think particularly for early career scientists, it's always going to be better working face-to-face. We are human. We like being in rooms together. I think what happens when you're face-to-face with people is you have more unstructured conversations, and so those moments of inspiration can come up. But I think once you know people quite well, then you can compensate for that a little bit um, via online collaboration. You have gone back to flying, though. How'd you feel? Were you like, oh, I'm back on the carbon bandwagon? It was a little bit weird. Actually, going back into the airport was quite strange, having had that year out. I mean, I'd had this weird experience where I had to go during my my no-fly year 2018, and I had a meeting out at the airport. So I went out to the airport, and that felt strange because I you know, hadn't been out there for six months. And I got a taxi out, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll do the carbon-friendly thing and get the bus back into the city. And to get the bus, you've got to, you know, you walk through the domestic terminal. And I felt, oh, my God, I'm going to be spotted, and someone's going to go, what are you doing at the airport? And sure enough, <laughs> when I got into the queue for the bus, one of my colleagues stepped up behind me. <laughs> And they were polite enough to say, I'm, I'm assuming that you <laughs> haven't just got off a plane, Sean. Wasn't the paparazzi, at least. No, that, that was the good thing, yeah. Hey, for the average Kiwi, someone who doesn't just fly around to conferences and might have, you know, years between international flights, their equation would be different, right? What What would their situation be if they gave up flying? So for a lot of people, flying will, will make a relatively small um, proportion of their, of their emissions. Overall, across the world, it's about 3% of emissions come from flying. It's not the silver bullet for ending climate change, us not getting on planes. For a lot of us, it'll be through transport. It could be our commute that'll be dominating our emissions or through the goods and services that we, that we use. You know, there's a lot of um, carbon that's embodied in those goods and services. Also through our diet, if you're a red meat eater, for example, there's a lot of methane emissions, for example, associated with that. There are lifestyle choices that affect 
our carbon footprint. But then there's a lot of stuff that we really don't have control over. You know, the type of energy the industry uses to make those products, the energy that's kind of embedded in, in everything around us in human society. And that's where your personal actions aren't necessarily going to tip the balance. And that's where we need governments um, and communities and businesses to come to the party as well as individuals. I need to, to warn you that we actually have a quick quiz prepared for you, okay. Sean. <laughs> now, as an eminent scientist, yeah. I don't expect you to have any problem with these okay. questions. Okay. So my expectations are up here, okay. just so you know. Yep. Right, question one. So far, where on the planet have the effects of global warming been most evident? Oh, gosh. Um, I, no, I, no, hang on. <laughs> I'm going to give you four options. Okay. I'll make it easy for you. In the tropics around the middle of the globe, that's option A. B. In the northern latitudes, C, in the southern latitudes, or D, same impact all over the globe? I'm going to go for the northern latitudes. Mm, B, that is correct. Sean Hendy, according to NASA, some of the fastest warming in the world has been up north in places like Alaska, Greenland, Siberia. Although you've probably just seen in the news, Antarctica has been breaking Heat records. Yeah, that's quite disturbing. Yeah, I was I was in um, so my wife's from Alberta in Canada, and one of the one of the first no fly breaking trips that we did was to go back to her hometown, which is Edmonton, which is quite far north, and we took a trip through the Rockies. They've been having massive fires. There was a, a town the size of Hamilton that would, had to be completely evacuated in Alberta. This is a part of the world that you know gets down to minus 40 in the winter, and you wouldn't think about the fire risk. But there's two things that are going on. There's the climate change, which is directly impacting the forests, but also it's the shift of invasive species. There's a beetle that's killing the big boreal forests, and you know it's been able to move north out of the US into Canada, and so it's leaving all this dead wood that is combustible. So it's yeah, it's hugely Double evident. Yeah, yeah, in a way that you just, we kind of don't see here in New Zealand. Uh, question two: According to an Ipsos survey of a thousand people last year, what proportion of Kiwis are personally worried about climate change? Ooh, I'm going to go for about two thirds. Not far off. Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten, 79%, okay. Seventy-nine percent, up from seventy-two a year earlier. Now this is twenty nineteen. Yeah, right. Uh, last year, but depressingly, only a third thought the government would be able to lessen the impact or meet its own emissions reduction targets. Yeah, which I, I guess we're realists, <laughs> and we're looking back at our performance over the last few decades. I mean, I, I think we do have to reflect on our own ability as a small country to influence the rest of the world, right? Because this is a global problem. As a country, we kind of face the same problem as almost I I did as an individual, right? You know, we're a high-emitting country as a wealthy country with a big agricultural sector. But on a proportional basis, we're a tiny chunk. So the way we can lead and the way that we can really deal with climate change is by being an example to the world. Again, you know, if not us, then who? Who's better placed than us to take a leadership role? And I'd like to think that we can do that in the coming decades. You obviously don't subscribe to the, we're too small to matter. Yeah, that's really giving up. And I don't think any of us can afford to give up and ride on other people's coattails. Question three, the final question. Okay. Who is this? As an actor, I pretend for a living. I play fictitious characters, often solving fictitious problems. I believe that mankind has looked at climate change in that same way, as if it were a fiction, 
as if pretending that climate change wasn't real would somehow make it go away. Oh, you got me. <laughs> so familiar. I can't quite put my finger on it. Quick clue, Sean. This actor is familiar with melting icebergs. Okay, now I'm really <laughs> confused. <laughs> Come on, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, <laughs> he, of course, was in Titanic. <sighs> Where familiarity yeah, with yeah, icebergs was not yeah, a good thing, right? They weren't right? melting fast enough. Wow, look, this, <laughs> uh, you know, arguably that iceberg was, was pre-industrial, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, human-induced climate yeah. change. But whatever. He was talking at the 2014 United Nations Climate Summit in New York City. Incidentally, interested in your thoughts, do you think it's helpful when movie stars wade in and lend their voices to the cause? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think so. Um, uh, you know, I think it, I think it, if you've got a platform um, and you care about climate change, you should be using it to, to talk about it. Obviously, people have to be careful about how they do it, and um, you know, it's certainly possible to go wrong in your communication, but I think you're always better off if people are speaking up and making it clear that they're taking personal responsibility as well. I'm going to give you one and a half out of three uh, because you were within cooey of the correct answer on question two, well, so I'm giving I'd you like, half a point. I'd like to thank, because I was a bit low there, I'd like to thank that actually it was my 2018 that bumped up Kiwi's concerns. So I'm, I'm going to give myself some points for that one. We do allow guests to argue the point on their scores, <laughs> so uh, you've persuaded us. Yeah. We'll give you uh, 1.7 out of three okay, there. All right, a couple of personal questions. You said earlier you were aware of climate change at the age of 12. Now you're 49. How much time do you spend thinking about climate change now, day to day? Uh, look, recently I've been focused very much on COVID, as a lot of people have, but it's it's increasingly clear that it's going to be a bigger part of our lives as we, as we go forward. I've sort of made a commitment to myself that it's going to be part of my science communication, uh, part of my work that I do from here on in. It's going to be an issue, I think, that's going to dominate the rest of my life. Is it a bigger issue than COVID? I, I think they're different and also connected. COVID is going to be with us you know, for the next couple of years. And then, of course, there'll be a recovery from what's happened. Climate change is not going away anytime soon. You know, our children, our children's children will be dealing with climate change, you know, well after we're gone, whereas COVID, I think, will kind of disappear. Pandemics themselves are not going to go away. And, and that's where the two issues are linked. The way that we're extinguishing habitat for animals, we're coming into closer contact with these zoonotic diseases that are jumping from wild animals into the human population more frequently. So actually the way that we're treating the environment is linked to the, the frequency of pandemics that are occurring. The two issues aren't completely separate, but climate change, yeah, it's not going away. Even if we get our act together right now, and really start dealing with it, you know, we've still baked in substantial warming and it's going to take us decades to become carbon neutral. COVID-19 has been an international catastrophe, but funnily enough, it's achieved one of the things you talked about in your no-fly book. It slashed the world's air travel. Are you hopeful that once COVID is under control, these more climate-friendly habits will stick? I mean, I hope so. I mean, there's also the potential for us to just focus on the short term. And I think this is going to be one of the one of the things that is quite quite dangerous about the moment in time where we are 
um, is that we, we're simply prepared to burn fossil fuels to restart our economy, to move people into jobs, and that's, that's going to be enormously tempting for all governments around the world, whether they're democratic governments, whether they're authoritarian governments. You know, there's going to be this, this impetus to get people back into work, and the easiest way to do that, for many people at least, will be to kickstart the fossil fuel industry again. So I have concerns that the world might go down that path, but again, you know, there is an opportunity to restart and to really take a new direction. A lot of people would have had a taste of working from home, cutting their commute. Certainly, I'm going to be commuting less, although, you know, I generally do it on a bicycle, <laughs> so so that won't help the, the climate that much. But I hope a lot of people, you know, that experience of, of not being stuck in traffic every day will hopefully stick and people will have got used to working from home. On that, you bike to work how often do you drive, and do you have a petrol car? <laughs> I do have a petrol car. Um, I don't. I don't drive to work. Uh, the University of Auckland actually makes it relatively expensive to park, <laughs> which is a good thing. No, we do have a petrol car, which we would take out once or twice a week. We're not big um, drivers looking to replace that with an EV sometime in the future. Do you have eco bulbs? Yes. <laughs> we did a big replacement of our old incandescent bulbs. Long uh, or short showers? <laughs> oh, <we'll, laughs> on a cold winter's morning, <laughs> they might uh, they might be a little bit longer um, than in the summer, but we yeah, we no, we try try to be uh, conservative in our water use and heating. Sean Hendy, thank you so much for coming on the One Hot Minute podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Don't forget to also check out the One Hot Minute video series where you can watch Sean Handy and all our other guests take 60 seconds to present their big idea about climate change. There are links on Stuff and from Play Stuff. If you want to catch every episode of this podcast, they're all at stuff.co.nz slash one hot minute. But you can also subscribe on all the usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. This episode was produced by Adam Dudding and me, Eloise Gibson. It's part of the Forever Project, Stuff's portfolio of climate change coverage. Thanks to Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. See you next time.